Hello and welcome to the Canadian Wargamer Podcast. Yes, it's the Canadian Wargamer podcast featuring two affable and youngish granddads, Mike and James, talking about primarily miniature wargames and the occasional hex and counter excursion from Mike from our unique perspective in the Great White North. And as the strains of La Foy d'Arabla die away, here are your hosts, Mike and James. Hey folks, welcome to episode 14 of the Canadian Wargamer podcast. I'm joined here as always with my chum James. James, how are you tonight? Oh, we're okay. Yeah, you had a tough week. That's month's end. Yeah, and it's only Wednesday, so. Only Wednesday, yeah. As the meme says, the Captain Haddock Tintin meme goes, Captain, it's only Wednesday. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel like it. Yeah. Play drinks. Are you drinking uh, tea there, buddy? Because uh, I no. saw you. No, no I, I, I can't. No, it's, it's, I can't do caffeine after dinner. Oh, I see. So it's just straight gin. Mm, mm-hmm. It's a clear beverage. Yes. You know, and notice the glass is like three inches deep. <laughs> three inches of gin. Yeah. Well, James, I'm really, really happy tonight that uh, you and I are joined by our guest, uh, Sean Taylor. Sean, welcome to the Canadian Wargamer podcast. Thanks very much. We're so happy to have you all the way from Victoria. Where it's much nicer. I'm guessing you guys are like hip deep in um, cherry blossoms and stuff like that. You are not wrong, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Would you yeah, like to hear no about, yesterday? Would you like to hear about today's ice storm? <laughs> that's, that's okay. I have family in uh, BC who torment me this time of year by sending me pictures of their gardens, and yeah, I'm like, whatever, just hit delete. <laughs> yeah, I got. I lived through the ice storm in Kingston in 99. I, I know what you're dealing with. <clears throat> you weren't one of the people who was locked in the mega during that, were you? Was that part of your, AO, your AOR or were you you were in Kingston? I was in Kingston. Uh, I was supposed to deploy with the, the division because they went down there. Yeah. But my uh, brother died uh, out here in BC. And uh, so they, they let me uh, stay back so I could fly out. But, of course, Kingston Airport was closed, so I couldn't even get out of there. Mm. Mm. <laughs> Well, I'm sorry about your brother. That that was that was just absolutely apocalyptic. Yeah, it's uh, crazy crazy even to think about it now. So uh, we are really really happy, Sean, to have you as I think the first Canadian worker. We had a couple of Canadian figure manufacturers. We have had um, uh, heads of clubs. Uh, but I, James, have we actually had a Canadian real games developer on the podcast? I don't think so. Um, well, me. Well, you, yeah. I mean, you're a co-host. You're on the payroll. You don't count. <laughs> right. Uh, well, I mean, Bob Birch has done some, but he's mostly there for he's mostly there for the figures. I think it, I think he gets you know it's a Kurt Hammond yeah. chops and what the rules design. So. Yeah. So yeah. we're gonna call Sean the yeah, first the first real rules. Yeah. And That's Sean, you're, you're well known. You're well known for your work with. Um, uh, 
Dr. Kevin Dunlop and your friend Robin on Great War Spearhead, and we want to hear a lot about that tonight. But you've also got a, a large stable of your own roles, and we're hoping to hear more about that. So um, we're just going to ask you to do what all of our guests do and just sort of give us your uh, give us your bio and particularly your wargaming bio, and then we'll take it from there. Okay, thanks very much. Um, so uh, I, I would like to start with my bio because I think it really sets me up for or sets sets people up to understand where I'm coming from uh, being a war gamer. So <clears throat> like many young uh, guys born in the uh, early 60s, um, both my mom and dad served during World War II. Uh, all of my uncles served and uh, my grandfather uh, on my mom's side actually served in uh, World War I with the uh, 10th uh, Canadian Expeditionary Force Battalion, mm -hmm. now the Calgary Highlanders. And he was uh, highly decorated. Uh, uh, one, uh, uh, what is it now? I knew I'd forget it when I was going to say it. Uh, Meritorious Service Medal. Uh, so oh. ordered to warrant officers and below, and it's second only to the VC for Valor. And that's one of the reasons why my love for uh, uh, World War One is so deep, um, because I heard those stories when I was a young fellow. So whipping through quickly, um, I'm, I'm the youngest of seven. All four of my brothers served, two for just uh, one stint and two for over 25. Uh, my oldest sister was going to serve, but she got pregnant and couldn't. Uh, and she never went back to it. She was, uh, she, she just sort of let it go. And uh, I served uh, two years in the Rocky Mountain Rangers. Well, 16 months in the Rocky Mountain Rangers, the militia regiment. And I got a little bit of class B call out time with the uh, three and one battalion PPCLI. And then I went Navy when I went reg force and I did 37 years. Uh, I was lucky enough when I started writing Great War Spearhead to be in Kingston, which of course, as you know, with the army's uh, um, uh, staff school there and the, the library they have at Fort Frontenac, I was blessed with some books that you can't find you know, almost anywhere else in the world um, regarding World War I. So I got to delve into that. Um, my career, I was 19 years as a chief petty officer first class. I ended up, uh, my last seven years were in senior appointments. I was the base chief out here in Esquimalt. And then just my last two years were setting up uh, uh, the Naval Personnel and Training Group formation. Um, so I didn't, I didn't get paid as a, as a formation chief at that point, but it, it was a brand new position that I stood up uh, and they brought me in there for that. Um, so, you know, I was one of the top seven chiefs in the Navy when I got out, which was, uh, you know, big, big feather in my hat cap and, uh, pretty proud of that uh accomplishment so that's yeah. my career up to date i've got uh um i'm married i've got two boys both my boys game uh one games with me on a regular basis here in my garage which is where i am which is my gaming room and uh so yeah so that's that's where i come from i've got a martial background and uh i've been collecting miniatures in the form of plastic uh natives and uh, cowboys or cavalrymen from back when I was three years old. And I remember getting my first Airfix sets when I was four. I got the Eighth Army and the Africa Corps by Airfix, uh, the nice. old classic ones, right? Yeah. And ever since then, I have been enthralled with miniatures. Um, I didn't get into miniature gaming right away, but I, uh, I had uh, at one point every Avalon Hill war game. Uh, I started collecting them at, at 11. <laughs> oh. I had all at one point uh that you could buy 
And, uh, you know, I played over Waterloo and Battle of the Bulge and Midway and Richthofen's War millions of times. I'm sure if you're at them all up, well, maybe millions of exaggeration, but you know what I mean? Like we wore them out. Like the counters actually had hardly any writing left on them by the time. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Me too. And uh, I slowly got into um, miniature gaming uh, from uh, playing Dungeons and Dragons and ended up getting uh, uh, Gary Gygax uh, chain mail rules, the first set. I have a okay. set. Yeah. You still got? Yeah. 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 Really? yeah. The little gold. silver, silver Very, cover. Yeah. And yeah. then there was Charles Grant's rules and I um, uh, can't remember his co-author all of a sudden, but uh, Don Featherstone. Mm -hmm. right. So I those and, and that sort of got me into the, the whole um, uh, genre of tabletop miniature games. And uh, from there, um, it, it sort of went on a back burner when I, when I became an ordinary seaman in the Navy because uh, I, was, I wasn't living on the ship, but pretty much. And if you've ever been on a ship, you know, you've got uh, six, six feet, square feet of space that's yours. Yeah. So you have no room for miniatures or board games or anything else. So it sort of all went to the side. Yeah. But when I posted ashore for my first time, uh, I was a, I was a uh, radio man. So I, I got a lot of shore time because you do about two thirds of your uh, career ashore. Um, so when I got posted ashore, I, I met these guys um, just through uh, bumping into them in a game store and they were miniature gamers. So I actually, my, my first metal army that I collected was uh, Nick Aforian Byzantine. And yeah. From there, I just took off. Like I, I started to get into the whole thing, and somewhere along the line, I started doing play testing. I, I can't remember the exact time, but I was doing play testing for Artie Conliffe. And I, I, I'm, I'm sure you've probably heard of Artie's rules. He's got Spearhead, he's got um, Crossfire, um, uh, Shaco. Um, yep, some solid, solid sets of rules. Absolutely. So we were, I was posted over to Aldergrove at the time and uh, we were doing play testing for Crossfire and uh, Spearhead. Mm. And after we did the Spearhead, I started mucking around with Spearhead on my own uh, because I thought it had a real easy fit into World War One. And that's always been my, my, my first love, if you will, of gaming has been World War One, but very, very difficult to find a good rule set anywhere when I, when I was younger, right? Um, you know, the, the closest that came to a good set was over the top. And it was, it, it sort of got three quarters of the way and then stopped. Uh, it, it became too clunky at a certain point. Mm. So I took Grey War spear, or Spearhead and I started working on it. And uh, my friend who is uh, over in Vancouver, a guy named Chris Leach, who also writes rules, uh, worked a lot with Artie. And is quite a big mover and shaker over in, uh, well, he used to be a big mover and shaker in Trumpeters, but not so much anymore. He usually does it just in White Rock. But, uh, you know, Chris is just a phenomenal fellow. And uh, he said to me, have you ever talk, talked about Artie about um, doing a World War One set for Spearhead? And I said, well, no, I, you know, I, I don't feel like I have that kind of connection with him. So Chris did. Chris said, you know, Sean's sort of playing around with a World War One set. So the next thing I know, I'm on the phone with Artie, and he says, "Yeah, run with it. Um, I think it should be a supplement to World War or to Great uh, to Spearhead itself, but just run with it." So there I was, on my own, had no clue of what I was actually doing to write a rule set from from the get go, but I had what I considered probably the best World War II set I'd ever played at that point. 
Um, cause I really like spearhead. It's a, it's an elegant system, right? Uh, it really allows the general to general the table instead of generaling the rules, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And, um, so I, I started, I tried to find a method to get to where I needed to be. So the first thing I thought is what scale do I want to do this in? Do I stay with spearheads scale, which is one stand is a, a platoon. I thought, yeah, that works. <clears throat> that should, that should capture what I'm looking for. Because I did have a very specific message in the game that I wanted to get across. And that was commanding an army in World War I, even when you know everything there is to know about that army and where the terrain is and where the defenses are and everything else, is not an easy task. So um, when I started doing it at the platoon level, I didn't find I was getting the right capture. Uh, something was missing for me in what I was looking for to feel the period. And for me, I, I, I'll talk about this a lot probably through this interview. And I talk about it a lot when people talk to me about my rules. I want my rules to feel for the gamer to feel like they are in the period, um, you know, executing a, a whatever level action we're executing. It should feel like you're in the mud uh, in World War One and trying to deal with moving a division from point A to point B to take a, t a piece of land, not just a bunch of pretty models moving across a table that looks really cool, but doesn't really mean anything. And it could be, you know, some of these rules right now are so generic. You could put uh, medieval knights on one side and uh, German Waffen SS on the other. It wouldn't matter. You know, it's, <laughs> the rules yeah, are so, they're yeah. so vanilla, right? <clears throat> so I, I, I first tried to get the scale right. And I did that just with a bunch of plastic miniatures glued onto uh, chopped up cardboard just to see, you know, to get the space right and the time right and the scale right. And once I got that, well, like once I realized the platoon was too small, I went, okay, well, the next logical step is to go to the, the stand as a company. And oh my God, it just took off. It was almost like I didn't, I couldn't control it. Uh, the game just built itself from that point. Hmm. Building, building the um, the TONEs, the Table of Organization and Equipment. I don't know how many people are going to listen to this, so you know it's easy for us military guys to fall into TLAs and FLAs, and I got to be careful with that. So um, I'll try and spell it out first. So you know, Table of Organization and Equipment, orders of battle, or bats. Those those were really easy to build at the company, to the battalion, to the brigade, to the division level, and even core. What's mm -hmm. uh, to the army level it gets a little bit uh, ethereal and below that the writings well because they they didn't really um concentrate much on the platoon until about 1915 so you know if you're trying to make a platoon level action um prior to 1915 you were almost by guessing by gollying it uh you got as good information on a platoon from uh probably the Franco-Prussian War or maybe down in the Boer War as you would in, in um, um, Flanders in 1914, if you were looking at the British Empire, for example. So I, I took that and I started to build on it. And, uh, you know, you when you think World War I, most people have a, I don't want to sound rude when I say this, but they have a gross misconception of World War I. So I hear all the time, oh, I don't like trench warfare. Well, neither the troops and the reality, um, French warfare was, was nothing more than a tactical time period for everybody to learn how to not fight trench warfare. 
Mm-hmm. I know that's a, a little bit convoluted, but honestly, they didn't know what to do with themselves. So they dug trenches, uh, especially yeah. on the Western Front, um, because the artillery was so powerful. Nobody had a clue of how to deal with the artillery, which we could now outshoot rifles again and could shoot as fast as some of the uh, um, uh some of the, like, you know, a, a, an inf- or sorry, an artillery ba- uh, battery could outshoot an entire brigade of infantry. So they had to find a way to deal with that. And of course, the machine gun threw another loop into it. And then you had aerial observation and eventually aerial strafing and bombing. And uh, the, the poor guys, like, you know, we, the, you, you hear the, the term over and over again, um, uh, lions led by donkeys. Mm, well, yeah. nothing further from the truth, in my opinion. And you guys, you guys both served and you understand, uh, I think, you know, at a, at, a, at a quick glance, if you've been in the field, even for a training exercise, you can understand how quickly things derail mm-hmm. and you can understand how long it can take for somebody to develop a way to not have it derail the same way. So yeah. imagine generals were doing, <clears throat> and some of these guys, like, I mean, you look at the British ex- are, uh, are the probably the best example. They had never put an f- army in the field of bigger than 25,000 men in their history, right? right? In the peninsula, which is, you know, Wellington had 25,000 British. Sure, he had a 72,000-man army, but there was 25,000 Portuguese and, a, and another uh, 12,000 Spanish, right? So 25,000 Brits and then uh, some allies so when they went over across to uh, take the BEF over, you had di- uh, division commanders commanding a division where they had never seen anything bigger than a battalion in the field. So that's that's just one piece of an entire puzzle <clears throat> that these guys had never, ever uh, been exposed to. And then you look at the volume of fire that um, bolt-action rifles brought to the table compared to even, even from the Franco-Prussian War, um, you know, the uh, Shaspot needle gun, um, the amount of, you know, just the sheer volume of fire from, from the rifles that they had and the amount of men on the field, um, which is another thing that people don't understand about World War I. You look at Vimy, Vimy is on a roughly a 10 kilometer front, right? And uh, the Canadians, uh, the Canadian Corps supported by two British divisions, one on the on the south flank and one actually part of the uh, the, the main assault as a follow up division. Uh, the assault the assault uh, units are, or the assaulting divisions are usually uh, figured out to be about 100,000 men supported by about another 50,000 engineers and artillery uh, over a 10 kilometer front. If you want to compare that to D-Day. Over a 52-mile front, you had about 150,000 guys or 110,000 guys land on the first day. So, you know, the, the sheer um, scope of personnel on the field and uh, the devastation. That's devast- very dense. Hey? That's very dense. <clears throat> oh, big time. Yeah. Um, as a matter of fact, Robert uh, Dunlop did a really interesting um, three-map study where he takes Waterloo and um, what's the other one? Um Sedan from uh, Franco-Prussian War, and he takes the maps and he superimposes them on the Mons battlefield, and you see just how because they're all um, comparative in uh, in numbers of men in the field, and then he's then you superimpose Mons on something like Normandy, 
and you just go, holy smokes. Like it just, it, it, it sort of blows you away when you think of how dense the battlefields were in World War I compared to World War II. Mm. And yeah. that's something that's, that's one of the things that uh, with a lot of the uh, skirmish games that you see for um, World War I, I think they really miss because you, you don't get the right feel when you look at most of the battlefields you see, like, uh, you know, some of the, some of the battles, like uh, two fat lardies do some really interesting rules, but I just get the, I get a sense that their, their um, ratios are way off. And if you look at how de devastating a machine gun could be in or one, there is numerous accounts of a machine gun, a single machine gun holding up an entire battalion or even a regiment all by itself. You don't see that in miniature games uh, because uh, in most of the miniature games, because just it, it, it means all your pretty models disappear right away, um, yeah. which is unfortunate because it, it gives a real um, to me, it gives a real poor indication of what the the actions were actually like. So when you play, if you ever play a game of Great War Spearhead, um, like my oldest son, he says it's his it's one of his favorite rule sets because every time he plays, he gets a knot in his stomach when he's doing his, his, his command orders at the beginning, because he knows if he doesn't get the command orders right to start with, it's really, really difficult to now fix that. And that's the way it should be. That's World War One uh, command and control. Right. You only had a, a certain uh, certain ability to change whatever you uh, decided was going to be your plan of action once the troops were launched. I mean, it, it does happen, but usually you had to uh, let them take their objectives or get to their objectives. And then it would take an hour or so, which in Great War Spearhead terms is usually two turns before you would even be able to uh, achieve another order change for those guys to carry on to another place or, you know, do a different task. Mm -hmm. So it's that, that that was my whole concept of operations to really show people the difficulty of trying to make combat, uh, combined arms work in World War One. And to capture that feel and the essence of what I thought, what to me is World War One, which is lots of artillery, difficulty in controlling your troops, um, and how do you achieve that breakthrough and then get the success from it? And it's not easy, but when you do it, you know you, you like. I, I tell you, you, you play Vimy, for example, and I played Vimy probably eleven or twelve times, um, and the Canadians have lost most times; they win. But when you win, you really feel like you've achieved something. Like, uh, it's not just, oh, yeah, that was a good game. It's like, wow, that was – and th that's one of the things I like about it is you can really see how things rolled out. Robert talks about this a lot is, you know, the terrain is so important. And you can see why certain things happen in certain ways. So that, that was where I kind of wanted to go with Great War Spearhead. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, the legacy of it sort of talk, speaks to itself. You know, it's been around since uh, – well – Great War Spearhead originally came out in 99 and uh, then we redid it into Great War Spearhead 2 in uh, 2013. So uh, nothing's really changed except that we took the original uh, supplement and put it all together in a standalone book. Right. So it really speaks to its, uh, its, itself on, on how it stands, stands the test of time. Yeah. Well, there's, there's a whole lot to, to unpack in, in there, Sean, for sure. I, I was thinking as you were, talking i i remembered um over the top which i think was a, a set of rules published by gdw yeah and 
I remember the gaming group I was in. Yeah, we looked at it, and some people uh, actually ordered um, like little armies from uh, Irregular, I think. Uh, but nobody had any idea what to do with them, uh, with the rules, and the whole project just sort of died stillborn. Um, and then, yeah, I, uh, otherwise, I mean, I can think of the occasional um, mimeographed skirmish set of rules. Um, but I, I, I'm struggling to think of anything other than, than, than your rules for the First World War. And I, I guess there's a lot of reasons for that, as you said. The, the idea that the, the period is kind of fundamentally unplayable, that's a misconception. Um, you know, so it tends to break down, in my experience, either into, uh, um, you know, like the, the, the opening Guns of August kind of scenarios or trench raiding games, right? Like Two Fat Lardies Through the Mud and Blood. Yeah. So you're 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 taking it to would it be fair to say to an operational level or a, um yeah not... it the game works best to have when you have a core fighting uh whatever it might be on the other side like if you're defending with a core you want to be attacked by you want the attacker to have two or three core. Right. And that's best. Like we've refought the Marne, we've redone Vimy, we've redone um Cambrai. So it it works and it it's such an elegant system like Artie, you know, Artie's uh, command system within Spearhead, which I just adopted in Great War Spearhead, is just brilliant. Like it's it's simple, it's elegant, but it captures everything you want. And uh, <laughs> as long as people follow it, uh, mm. some guys, you know, they'll do their command arrows and they'll draw them out, but then they they want to fudge it because they know they pooched it. So they don't want to follow their command arrow. And, you know, you got to trust the guys you're gaming with to, uh, to be honest, but uh, it doesn't happen very often that people do that. Um, most people stick to it, but yeah, mm -hmm. it's, um, it's got, uh, it's got a lot of depth. Like you can take great war spearhead all the way back to the Russo Japanese war. Um, it works as far back as that. I wouldn't take it any farther back because uh, the, the, the sheer differences in artillery use and machine guns, um, and we've taken it as far as the uh, uh, the Polish Civil War, uh, oh. the Polish War against the, the Russians. Right, right. Could you break uh, uh, like a typical game down into you know um, the the sort of discrete phases of the game? Like what what is it that the rules require you to do in the command phase versus in the like how does it unfold from there once you once you plot your orders? Sure. Really. Okay. So the first thing it, um, you 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 either make up a scenario or you make up a battlefield that you're going to play on, or you use one of our books or a historical setting. Right. And uh, each side has their, um, their orders of battle. And if you're, if you're having multiple players, you can have a single CC uh, CNC who gives command to everybody else to do what they need to do, but he has a sort of an overall plan. So what you do is you get a map. So once you, uh, once you understand your, your orders of battle, uh, let's say you've got a British division that you're attacking with. So you'll have uh, the division headquarters and then you'll have three brigades. Uh, each brigade is, is roughly, um, well, early war, it would be a, an equivalent of uh, 16 companies of infantry, which would be in four, four different battalions, but we, it, you're not concerned about the battalion per se. It's just an organizational piece within the rules, but you, they don't have a separate uh, function. So you'd have 16 infantry stands, four machine gun stands, each of uh, would be the equivalent of, um, uh, see at that time, two machine guns. So you got a, a, an anti-infantry factor to a two, to two machine guns is a four, for four machine guns it's a five, and for six machine guns is a six. 
a real simple way to give you the uh, anti-infantry factor for the machine guns. Um, so each brigade has to be given an order. And, uh, that, and that's what the command structure is all about for, for um, Great War Spearhead. So the division, you would, you, would have your, uh, you would draw a map or you would have a map printed. And then you draw your, let's say it's the first Canadian division. So you would draw, draw one div HQ, you draw the little symbol and where you want it to move to. So you draw a command arrow. So you have, and you put an A for attack and the command arrow and wherever that the head of your arrow is, so the apex of that arrow, that's where your division headquarters is supposed to end up. That's where they're supposed to move to. You do exactly the same thing for your brigades. And the brigades, before you do that, they can have artillery attached to them, or you can leave the, the artillery off table, depending on the time period. So you would either attach, like you might attach a battery to each brigade, um, and they would be part of that brigade now. So you would have your 16 infantry stands, your command stand for the brigade, four, four machine gun stands, and then the artillery stand attached to it. So that gives you 22 stands to that brigade, which makes it, you know, you got to know that for the art, for the uh, morale checks later on if you uh, start taking heavy casualties. So you draw command arrows for all these three elements, um, your three brigades, um, where you wherever you want them to go on that table. So let's say, for example, you're supposed to take a bridgehead or sorry, a bridge, so you can develop a bridgehead uh, later on in the um, in a in a, uh, a fictitious battle or in a realistic battle um, or a historic battle. Yeah, you would uh, draw your command arrows to wherever you need the your brigades to go, and they again get an A order, which is attack, or you might want them to be in defend or reserve. So if you put a reserve, you put R, and they stay in the reserve position. And then you would follow the reserve uh, deployment rules later. So once that starts, your brigade commanders each have a zone of control or a zone of command, which is normally 16 inches for a brigade uh, commander. And that means each of his elements within his brigade, those, those 21 stands we were talking about, mm -hmm. uh, the 16 infantry, the four machine gun and the artillery uh, uh, battery, they all have to remain within 16 inches of that, of that command uh, figure or like command stand, it, it represents the brigade headquarters. The division has the same thing. They have a command zone as well. And that means that each of the brigades have to remain within 24 inches. So the brigade commander has to be within 24 inches of the division commander to be able to um, uh, get the effects of division support, whether it's off table artillery or getting new orders or whatever the case may be. And so it's a real simplex system to take into account how difficult it was to maintain control of those guys, those hundreds and thousands of men over a, over a distance that, uh, you know, each inch in uh, Great War Spearhead is anywhere between 80 and 100 meters, depending on, on how you want to scale the battle. And that's really based more on, um, uh, on who's making up the scenario than it is about the, the necessity of having it at 80 or the necessity of having it at 100 meters. Sometimes in smaller battles, you want to go to 80 meters so you have more room on the table. But it's, it's really, um, it doesn't have a lot of effect on the, on the gameplay itself. It's really more of a, an aesthetics piece for the person designing the, uh, the layout. So that's about it for the command phase. So that's what happens. And then if you want to change an order for one of your brigades, if your division commander is moving, he can't, he can't change orders. 
So you don't want to move your division commander too often, which is historically accurate, right? They, they had a tough time maintaining any command and control if they were on the move. So once you're, once you're in place, though, you, you can try and change an order. And depending on which nation you are and what year it is, uh, you have an ability to change an order that is based on a D6 die roll. And you're either successful or you're not. So if you, let's say, for example, your first, your first brigade got up to a hill and you were pretty sure the enemy was going to be on the other side, so they get there. Once they achieve their objective of their order, they automatically go to a defensive stance so they can defend the position that they've taken. So if you wanted to try and change that guy's order, you have to write an order change, which is another map, like another drawing on your map. But if you don't get a successful uh, order change, then they just stand there. So they stay in the defensive stance. They can still react to the enemy when the enemy uh, shows up, but they can't move forward, which can cause you to lose all the initiative uh, that you just developed by finding that the enemy hadn't defended uh, a very important place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. So the decision points, because, I mean, what makes a good game is... is decision points that are meaningful for the player um yeah so like really your decision points as your as a division or core commander is sort of you know you know you 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 want to move your headquarters forward so you can keep control of your brigades and support them yep but yeah i get and then i guess you're kind of weighing that against well i've got to stay still so i can issue new orders just in case yep so there's a payoff to each side, right? Yeah. So if you if you look at Vimy, it is always a good one for Canadians to look at, right? So if you look at the the division headquarters, uh, first second division headquarters didn't move during the entire battle. They stayed right where they were. Third division, fourth division was supposed to move, but they never managed to get off the off the ground, right? They had a, a tough go of it. Um, but the third division actually had a um, for lack of a better term, a detachment of the headquarters move forward with the uh, British Third Division so that they could keep command control. Uh, so they linked back to the division headquarters proper with this detached headquarters. And that allowed them to keep command control when they were up on the German gun line. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, um, and then the, like the, the fighting between, between, company stand is just a is very simple yeah i assume yeah so really you know the 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 concept of ops was um you wanted the person to take on the role like i wanted the person to take on the role of a core commander and it can go up if you have more more people but uh, generally a core commander right and um you know good staff college uh principal you only look two levels down right so as a corps commander, you're worried about the division and the brigade. As the division, right. you're worried about the uh, the brigade, and in in Great War spearhead terms, because we don't break down into the battalion, you're really worried about um, any of the division assets. So you know your division mortars, your artillery, that kind of thing. Um, so we tried to I tried to keep it uh, so you were only looking two levels down, and also if you're a German commander or a French commander or an Italian commander. You think you're, you would automatically think that your company is the equivalent to the opponent's. 
So in a battlefield environment, like we're trying to show, they should be uh, equivalent. The rest of it should be based on how well you can do combined arms to, um, to achieve your effect. And some people would say, oh yeah, but the, the German machine gun was so much better than the French machine gun or blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. That actually all becomes pretty much uh, moot uh, in almost every situation when you look at it beyond the, the sheer tactical point of view of a few seconds or a few minutes on the battlefield. Yeah. And that, I mean, that very rarely made a, a, a huge impact in, in, um, in the greater uh, aspect of, the, of, a, of a battle. Um, I mean, you could look at something like uh, the Newfoundlanders trying to get through the gap of their own wire and losing 90% uh, of their guys. But that, that is, a, is a, not a, necessarily an anomaly, but it's, it's something that they should have never done tactically but they didn't have the 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 um, the uh, for, uh, forethought to stop before they got annihilated. Yeah, yeah, and I and I think a lot of our cliches about First World War uh, gaming come from the the first day on the Somme, don't they? Absolutely, yeah, and it's and it's really like it, it really is a misconception. Like uh, if you look at, um, I mean, there's no doubt there was mass casualties. There was huge, huge. Um, um, artillery and machine guns on the Italians, but you got to look at the size of the armies they were dealing with too. I mean, holy smoke! You, you know, Verdun, um, the Germans had uh, fourteen hundred guns lined up on a on a space that was about six miles wide. Mm -hmm. like, how can, how can you even fathom that? Yeah, it's unbelievable. Yeah, and, and and that kind of leads me to a, a question, Sean, about how. Um, combat works in, in these rules because I so I've never played them obviously but I, I totally understand your your concept of trying to put the player in the role of the core commander but it's a miniatures game and, and how do how do you keep the miniatures game from bogging down where once your cores or your divisions come into contact you're not like rolling dice as you know one stand is trying to kill another stand because I can see the whole game bogging down at that point right well the 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 beauty behind uh Artie's rules is he keeps the combat simplex enough that it flows. So really what, what happens is all, all D six rolls, right. And, okay. uh, certain things are taken into account. Like, um, did the, 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 uh, the opponent move, if they move, then they might be exposed to a, a greater risk of fire, which is very true in world war one. Cause they didn't do, uh, by the end they were using, uh, fire and movement, more along the lines of what you would see in uh, the early war of uh, World War II. But in the earlier days, they were, they were not yet to that point. They would do group movements. So like an entire platoon would, would spring forward as the others fired. But they did do fire and movement. It just wasn't as, um, as uh, I don't know, complex or as, as uh, refined, I guess, as, as you would see it near the end. So anyway, um, for the rules... If you roll a six, it's usually it, it, like if there's no modifiers, a six will cause a KIA. So that will remove a stand. If you get a four or a five, it's considered disordered. So that means you've done enough fire, uh, put enough fire on that target that they have basically decided, oh, yeah, I'm staying down because I don't want to take any more fire. Um, if you get two disorders in a turn, uh, that's considered a KIA. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a really elegant, simple system from that regard. And then uh, um, 
the way the way you look at the uh, uh, the combat tables is um, all infantry have a defense factor of five, and that can go up to uh, um, by based on uh, like if you have level one tr- uh, entrenchment or level two entrenchment, that gives you a one or a two bonus to your defense factor. So you could have a uh, an infantry stand in a in a well dug in trench would be a defense factor five. And if you're firing at them with your regular infantry, which is most infantry are an, uh, an attack, uh, anti-infantry of five. So it usually goes, uh, it usually adds up if you're in open combat. But if you're a five firing at the uh, guy in the trench, it means you can only do a, uh, a disorder to him by rolling a six, which means you have to get pretty good rolls to get him out of that trench. And that's where the whole concept of, of uh, getting uh, combined arms comes in. Because now you can stonk them with mortar or you can hit them with uh, your artillery fire and then go in with your infantry into, a, uh, into an assault type situation. And uh, yeah, so that's, that's in, in general how it works. You, uh, you usually see that uh, like it's, it's very seldom that you'll see uh, your four divisions all hitting the opponent at the same time. What you normally get is a, a brigade will go in or a regiment will go in ahead of others. And it sort of is uh, almost like uh, the waves coming in on a beach, right? Just like you would see in, a, in an actual battle. So, mm-hmm. you know, nobody advances in a, in a huge line. Although it sometimes looks like it is they're going forward. But, uh, um, you know, a- enemy contact uh, always. So the, uh, the, movement, the movement rate is randomized? Uh, no, the, the movement rate for infantry is eight inches a turn. But if you only move four, you can still shoot. So if you move eight, you can't shoot. Um, and then there's a there's a whole matrix of uh, who gets to shoot first. So the first thing is always indirect artillery. Then uh, it's uh, stationary uh, stationary guns, stationary machine guns, stationary infantry, and then it's moving infantry, et cetera, et cetera, all down the line. So and, and you when you fire by that uh, that chart that I just mentioned, if if the um, if the uh, indirect artillery takes out four of your infantry stands in a battalion, they're gone before you even have a chance to fire. And so, when you're coming at a guy, you want to make sure you're trying to suppress them before you ever get close to them. And that's that's all part and parcel of um, of how the game, uh, how how the real battles rolled out. And that's why. Um, uh, preliminary bombardments and uh, box barrages and all that kind of stuff became so prevalent and 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 basically the norm, uh, and that's all worked into the rules as well. So like, there's a big difference between playing an open battle 1914 um, and uh, um, let's say a 1916 uh, late 1916 game. Uh, not only do you have trenches in the 16 game, but you have so much more artillery. And you get counter battery fire. You can use gas. It's all in there, uh, just like you would find on a, a World War One battlefield. And it can be, you know, when when I get new players, I, I try and tell them don't jump right into fighting um, uh, the Verdun type scenario or or the Somme. Step through it. Go, and that's the way the scenarios are laid out in the rule book. Actually, is they we try and walk you through um, sort of the open combat. Uh, World War uh, 1914 era and then walk through slowly so that you get the concepts of how everything works and then you you get into that uh, uh, the Somme um, where the uh, British 10th Corps went across at Deep Valley. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, and e each period of the war, as you said earlier, is so different, right? So the Hundred Days is totally different than 1916, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You've, you've got tanks, you've got artillery spotters in aircraft using, um, you know, wireless sets to talk to batteries. I mean, it's 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 a whole different world of technology. So, yeah. yeah. And and actually, from from I, I if I wanted to, uh, this is just me uh, speaking off the top of my head from what I know about the period. But if I wanted to get into First World War gaming, and your rules make it very tempting, I'd want to either start at the front or the back. But you've also got a whole pile of of other scenarios, like your your website Taylor Wargaming. You've got um, you've got a vast range of you and Robert Dunlop have. Um, you're interested in, in the Gallipoli campaign. You're interested in. Um, uh, you're doing some work on the Italians and Austrians right now. I think. Yep. Yeah. Days of May is my Italian uh, scenario book for um, World War One, and it'll take us back to the uh, the Italia, uh, Italo Turkish War, right? Nineteen twelve, and all the way up to uh, nineteen eighteen, uh, uh, Viterio Veneto. Yeah. Yeah. And then you you also got a a, a book for uh, Mesopotamia, I think, don't you? Yes, yeah. Uh, the, the first um, roughly, I guess, uh, 18 months in Mesopotamia. And mm -hmm. we'll do the second half um, eventually, but uh, we wanted to get to a couple other things like Robert's working on uh, Where the Red Poppies Dance, which mm -hmm. is the Somme battlefields from 1914 all the way through. Mm -hmm. So it's not just the, the Somme, it's everything that happened in the Somme Valley. Right. So, it's going to be an interesting uh, amalgamation of, of battles. Um, I was actually playing one of the, um, oh, I can't even remember what it is now. Um, it was uh, the, the first time the Canadian division actually, um, or the Canadian Corps, uh, there was, uh, they, were, they were used for the first time in the Somme in November. Why can't I remember the name of the town? Jeez. Uh, anyway, they, um, they actually did really well. Um, considering the, the the last two actions they had been in, they did not fare as well as uh, uh, as they had, had hoped. In fact, the second division, second division, yeah, second division's morale was quite low when they uh, when they went into the Somme from the shellacking they took in the in the previous battle. Right, right. Um, and the the other thing that really struck me listening to your uh, to you and um, uh, Robert talking to. Uh, uh, Sean and the, the God's Own Scale podcast is, you know, the amount of primary um, research that, that you guys do. Like, I I was really struck by his, um, you know, your partner Robert's, uh, um, you know, actually looking at the German um, regimental histories for the, the, the opening, you know, months campaign, right? And actually finding that the, the so-called British Mad Men, it wasn't as, as deadly as the British like to say, like to say it is, right? Yeah, and we actually caught a lot of flack for that. Eh? Yeah, uh, we you know, like we had um, um, Jack Sheldon's book on the Mons, and we both sort of went through that. Robert actually told me about it, so I bought it. He was already going through it. Plus, the um, he has a lot of the regimental histories that he could get because not all of them are available for the Germans because some of them were destroyed in the bombings during World War II. Um, but he was going through them because Robert, Robert speaks fairly uh, well, reads fairly fluently in German and speaks quite well as well. And uh, Jack Sheldon said the same thing when he started going through the graves um, and he took huge amounts of flack for what he said. 
because he wrote a whole book on it. And uh, if you ever read Jack Sheldon's works, it's, it, it's just amazing research. Uh, I highly recommend uh, any of his uh, books. Although I got to warn you, if you're a Canadian, you pick up the Vimy book, you're going to be you're going to be going, well, that's not what I know. Because uh, <laughs> it, it's it's a bit different. Um, he does he he um, when he and I talked uh, when I was doing the Vimy uh, game for the uh, or getting pre- prepared for the Vimy game in uh, Ottawa. Uh, when we put it on for the hundredth uh, anniversary, um, Jack said, "You know, Sean, you know, read the book, but remember to to read it with a, a clear eye because he said it might you might find some of the stuff offensive as a Canadian." And I said, "Well, why would I find it offensive? Because it's it's not probably what you were taught in school." I said, "I'm used to that. I was in the Navy for thirty seven years, Jack. <laughs> don't, don't think you can fool me too much." But yeah, there's a couple things in there you're going to be going, "Huh? I didn't know that." Um, but, um, yeah, so Robert is, um, he is an absolute, uh, gem of a human being, but he is also an absolute monster for detail. Like he does not want us to miss anything when we do our, our maps and, uh, orders of battle. And he wants to understand why to every component that he can possibly dig into, because that why, uh, uh, something is oh, it's Posier, I think was the battle I, I was going to talk about. Mm-hmm. Posier, you know, there's a uh, getting to Mokert Farm, there's just a tiny little dip from the Canadian side when you're looking over Mokert Farm and why it was such a nasty place for the second division to take. There's just a little dip where the farm is. You look on a, a, a you look on a, um, a topographical map. And you see the you, you see the uh, contour line, and you think, well, that's no big deal. But apparently, that little dip of, of two to three meters was enough to submerge all the German bunkers that they had built into the uh, into the uh, basement of the of the farmhouse. And so, you know, you can't see that when you look at a topographical map, and you don't understand until you actually start to look at the the gross detail. And that's what Robert does. He goes right into, okay, so why, why couldn't the artillery hit this specific bunker? And then he finds out. So then we have to find a way to replicate that for the battle so that it's not so easy to take Moquette Farm or it's the mouse trap or whatever, right? And uh, I think that's, that's what really brings an element to the game that makes it, um, I don't want to call it more believable because I mean, it's still a game and it's still, you know, it's still a simulation of a, of history, but it really makes you feel like you're in the period because now you're, you're, you're talking about uh, the detail of a, of a bunker that should be submerged uh, behind a wall. So do you give it an extra defense factor or do you make it impervious, like, you know, uh, un, unobserved or unhittable by indirect fire, things mm-hmm. like that. So, you know, you just, we work that into the, into the game of however we need to. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's what's so important about these first World War battles is the is, is modeling the topography on the tabletop. Now your your rules do it in such a large scale that you don't have to worry about like you know an individual hill. But you know your example of of Mouquet Farm is a great one. I I listen to Paul Reed's podcast, The Old Front Line, and he's always talking about how you know the the landscape understanding the landscape is so crucial to understanding the battles, right? Um, so you know I. I I imagine that's something that your scenario maps would, would put a lot of effort into is helping the player kind of model these, the topography in a realistic way. 
Uh, I, I hate these, um, you know, the easy takes of somebody's, oh, well, that general was stupid. Yeah. Because he didn't do this obvious thing that I can see from a map. It's like, well, no. <laughs> I, you know, like, I, yeah, there, there have been some incompetent generals, but, you know, mate, like they, 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 they got there for reasons, you know, like they weren't, yeah, some of them may have been out of their depth, promoted above their level. Um, but yeah, people just like so not understanding, you know, friction, you know, how hard it is to get people moving, how yep. hard it is to, you know, it's like, okay, well, I want to attack there. And, you know, and everybody's saying, you know, all the armchair generals are, oh, why aren't they attacking? It's like, well, because the truck with the gas didn't show up. Mm-hmm. You know, um, these guys settled down and they started making their coffee. And then, you you know, you it's two hours to get them up and moving again. <laughs> yeah. Friction. That's exactly it, right? Yeah. 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 And uh, it's funny you, you say that, uh, you know, people calling the general stupid. I, I think that there's there's far, far less understanding of what a general had to go through in World War One than there is of what generals had to do in World War Two. And and then, you know, you can even pick armies in World War One, like, you know, the the Austrians, uh, um, the Austrians are a favorite of mine, because they get so badly maligned by everyone, like everybody thinks the Austrians were just useless. And really, when you look at the Austrian soldier, um, I mean, just just take a look one day at uh, the um, uh, Straff expedition pictures or um, uh, the Tyrol campaign. Take a look at the terrain those guys had to climb up in the middle of uh, being fired upon by the enemy and then engage the enemy in a fight on the top of a 6,000 foot mountain after they had just finished climbing it. And you sort of get a bit of a different perspective of were they bad soldiers or did they just have a government that didn't understand what a modern army needed to do uh, to have for weapons and that you know they, they were still using brass cannons for heaven's sakes yeah and the general, know, brass cannon can't fire as fast or as long or as, uh, you know it's just ridiculous yeah and the generals are were figuring this all out too i mean you know 1914 they had basically the same command setup that napoleon had yeah mm-hmm. pretty much you could see what you could see from the back of a horse and orders got transmitted as fast as your staff galloper could move <laughs> and that's it and then you oh and yeah and then and you went you know you're a british general and you went to africa and you might have fought a campaign against some angry natives with spears yeah you know or you commanded a brigade you, you might have commanded an entire brigade in the northwest frontier and been sniped at by some afghans Mm-hmm. And now, oh, look, you've got 100,000 men spread out over miles and you can't, you don't know where most of them are. Yeah. And you're, yeah, supposed, absolutely. To, and you're supposed to command that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, the, you know, the, the, the sheer scope of change in technology, um, you know, from aircraft dropping messages down to the guys on the ground to tell them where they spotted the enemy to uh, balloons with... Uh, um, Morse code wires dangling down to the ground so they could transmit uh, on the on the uh, on the wires down to the uh, ground station, and then by the time you hit the uh, the end of the war, you've actually got radio sets that maybe not as reliable as you would hope, but they were still radio sets, wireless that were out in the fields and in the aircraft, and uh, 
Um, wow. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, yeah, the, they, the scope is just mind boggling that they even managed to uh, not kill everybody. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and some of the, um, you know, the, the science taken to war, like the um, using sound detection to, yep. to plot positions of enemy batteries for, oh, yeah. for counter battery for your, your counter battery plan and stuff. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah, I just find the whole thing so fascinating. You know, it's just uh, uh, the good news is I think that people are starting, uh, you know, at least in our community, people are starting to understand a little bit more. Uh, I think some of the books that have come out in the last few years have a, a better take than the old, uh, um, the old contemptible books that were the only ones available uh, when I was a kid. Uh, you know, the, the only thing you ever heard about the French is they mutinied and yet <laughs> You know, the, the French army, if they hadn't stuck around, there wouldn't have been uh, a Western front. So, yeah. um, again, an army that's badly maligned. And who were the ones that were most successful at the, on the first day of the Somme? The French and the British that were uh, aligned beside them. So, yeah. you know, there's all kinds of things that we, we, uh, we have been poorly um, led, if you will, uh, down the education path on. But I think it's getting better. Uh, yeah, I, a lot of the uh, the British war gamers that I follow on social media, like uh, Alex Southern, who calls himself Storm of Steel, um, get absolutely irate. If you want to, if you want to poke the bear, get them, ask them what they think about the the Blackadder Four, right? <laughs> and and how, that, how that's just created this whole well, like General Melchett, right? The general in the chateau, who's an who's an imbecile, like you know that that as James says, that's all that's the stereotype we have of these guys, right? Yeah. So it's really fascinating that you're actually challenging us to be one of those divisional or core commanders and saying, okay, buddy, you figure it out, you know, do better. Yeah. You and know. you know, the, 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 the really interesting thing about it is, is even in the really difficult situations, you can still be successful if you, if you uh, know what you're doing and you can get all those key elements, you know, the artillery, machine guns and the infantry, all working in conjunction and hitting that sweet spot that is combined arms, uh, you can win. You, yeah, you know that's that's the whole point. It's not it's not just a foregone conclusion. Uh, I mean, it looks nasty when you're the defender too. Like uh, my son, we we played a game uh, four weeks ago on um, the Straff expedition, uh, Austrians against uh, Italians, and the Italians only have a single division on the table. Uh, uh, well, it's not even a full division. It's three regiments. Their fourth regiment and the, um, uh, the Brasaliari are both off, off table until uh, turn four. And the Austrians have three corps that are coming oh. at them. Oh, you look at it and you go, oh, my God, this is just going to be a massacre. But then the, the Austrians have to go over such gross terrain to get to the Italian positions. And then the Italians start opening fire. And you see the Austrians start to whittle down and whittle down and whittle down. And then all of a sudden the Italian uh, reserve comes on. And all of a sudden, what looked like it was going to be a juggernaut that was just going to blow the Italians away is now this, uh, in some places, this fragile um, uh, remnant of, a, of a, a husk of what was a division. And then the, the Austrian commander is just going, hold on, guys, come on, we, we can do it. It's just, it's just unbelievable to watch it full, uh, roll out because, uh, you know, it's, it's not 
and then the, the Austrians actually won that game. It was just, it was a, a really interesting fight. And it, it went almost like it did historically. The, uh, the Austrians were a little faster in how quickly they broke the Italians. But it was really interesting to see. Oh, sounds like a great game. Um, in the time remaining, I, I just wanted to ask, uh, what did I want? Yeah, so I had a, one, we've sort of touched a little bit about uh, Vimy Ridge, and we've talked about a little bit about the Canadian experience from World War One. So that kind of leads me to one of the questions that I like to kick around with our guests is, the idea of being a Canadian war gamer, right? So one of the questions that I think James and I have talked about on an ongoing basis with our guests is, are you just a Canadian who happens to be interested in war games or are you, is there something about the Canadian experience of war and history that, that you are attracted to in, um, in your gaming, you know, writing rules and, and as, as a player? And uh, I'm thinking of, uh, oh, here's, here's a cat. Yeah. Uh, so I'm thinking of that, you know, in terms of the Canadian experience of the First World War. Like, how important, right. how important is that to you? Well, okay, so I, I think I have to answer that in sort of a twofold way. First of all, I am, a, uh, I am very proud of the military heritage that I am now a part of as a veteran. Um, you know, anybody who can't look at our, at our uh, military past and not have a have a bit of lump in their throat about what we've been able to accomplish i think is is probably made of stone um so i'm a proud canadian war gamer i really like canadian content uh i buy canadian stuff as much as i can i do war of 1812 i do uh you know vimy ridge when i was uh, when we were at the uh war memorial in, or the war museum in ottawa uh, for the hundredth commemoration, that was just a that was a huge, huge thing for me that I'll never forget. Um, and uh, so, so yeah, I you know for me, Canadian is important. I've got Alex's uh, full battle rattle, all the stuff, including his uh, Lab Twenty Five, and I use those nice. those guys in different uh, scenarios, including my inept game uh, to take out aliens. And um, yeah, so you know. From that perspective, I am absolutely bought and sold Canadian uh, Canadian content, but at the same time, I I like gaming, uh, miniature gaming in general. Like you know, I play everything from Middle Earth to uh, Near Future. So you know, I'm I, and I don't I don't consider myself uh, bipolar because of that. I think it's just uh, I'm. I would have to say probably Canadian content first and then everything else sort of tails in naturally. Mm. And would you, would you say that there are some, um, you know, maybe comfortable myths about the Canadian performance in the great war that, that your rules might challenge? Like for example, the idea that by the hundred days, you know, the Canadians were the shock troops and the British army was basically, you know, shell shocked. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the reality to that is the, the Canadians um, and the Australians, the Anzac Corps, I should say, they both had uh, a different ability to maintain continuity within themselves. So, you know, you know as well as I do, the more familiar you are, uh, familiar you are with the guy in your trench, the easier it is to fight with him, like against the enemy. So the, the British... Um, they were not as, uh, you know, the Canada, the Canadians like to think that, uh, you know, or we were taught that 
we were the shock troops and there was nobody else. Well, you know, first of all, there was the, the Australians right beside us that were the, the, also shock troops. But if you look at the British divisions that were in the 100 days, they outnumbered us four to one uh, in the same campaign and didn't do any worse than we did. Um, it's just a matter that the Canadian Corps and the Australian, uh, the Anzac Corps, were, were more uh, um, uh, single entity elements. So it was easier for them to have command control over a, uh, a space with bigger, uh, quite frankly, there were bigger brigades too, right? Because we kept the four battalions when the British went to the triangular division mm-hmm. and the Australians were the same. So, you know, that's something that most people don't even realize that, uh, you know, a, a Canadian brigade was uh, roughly a quarter, of this, uh, quarter larger than the British, which makes a big difference when you're talking about uh, uh, the type of combat we're talking about. So, uh, yeah, the other thing is, is that the Canadians were not the shock troops of the Empire at the very beginning. In fact, uh, the Canadians held their own only with one brigade at Ypres. Uh, the other two brigades sort of broke and ran, and for good reason. I mean, the guys right beside them, the French Terries, ran, and they didn't know what the hell was going on with the gas, so they they buggered off. And the one brigade sort of held their ground, everybody else regrouped, and that's what you would hope would happen with any veteran organization. The Canadians managed it, but the next couple actions they were in, uh, they didn't do well at all. They had uh, um, poor understanding of battlefield. Uh, they had poor understanding of how to coordinate their artillery and uh, they looked as amateur as they should being amateur soldiers Hmm. Uh, by the time they got to the Somme in 16 uh, November 16 they were starting to get a sense of themselves um, starting to they really got that baptism of fire down the Somme in as as far as the Canadian Corps goes and from there they grew into what you see at uh, Vimy and uh often forgotten what they did at uh, Passchendaele, except everybody likes to talk about the mud because everybody, you know, you slip off the duckboard and you sunk in the mud, which is only true for about a, a 250 meter square area, but everybody wants to remember that. Um, it was a bit bigger than that, but, you, you know, that's one of those uh, stereotypical uh, attitudes you have of the, the mud in Passchendaele, and actually that was only just a certain portion of the battlefield, bad though it was. Um, so, yeah, the Canadians really did um, marshal into that shock troop thing. Um, and the Germans had a lot of respect for them because the Germans knew that the Canadians were tenacious. But so were the so were a number of uh, British divisions that did very well throughout the war. Um, and, the, you know, the Anzac were the same. Um, another malign group was the Portuguese. The Portuguese got badly spanked in uh, Operation uh, Michael. And uh, because they got caught with their pants down because they were just moving into the line and everybody thinks the Portuguese were lousy soldiers. But if you follow them through the hundred days, they did very well. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of misconceptions in that kind of thing. And yeah, great war spearhead does a good job of uh, I think it does a really good job of capturing the elements of that type of thing. And uh, you can see that those, those were misconceptions. They're not truths. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, it's it's one of those periods where um, you know it's one of the, I think the more I read, the more I I realize I I either I I remembered something incorrectly or I just didn't know it or I I was you know working with a stereotype about. So uh, it sounds like if you really wanted to um, immerse yourself into your rules and all their supplements, you could spend 
a lot of gaming time on this period. Uh, just a last question about Spearhead. The obviously, I think the scale, you know, that you're working at would favor small figure scales. So, would six mil be optimal for what you're doing? Um, so I, I gotta say that like I started out playing Spear Great War Spearhead with 15 mil things, and uh, I just sold all my 15 mil stuff off to a guy over in England, uh, Rich uh, Richard Phillips. Um, not because I didn't like it, but because I want to, I'm, I'm trying to um, downsize a little bit my own gaming, uh, my own gaming space because I've increased other uh, genres. So I, I've got, I'm trying to go over to all six mil in, in World War One. Uh, I've worked quite closely with um, uh, Peter Barry uh, from uh, Bacchus Six Mill, and you can buy all the Great War Spearhead packs through him at Division and some core. Oh goodness. Mm. Yeah, so it's it's nice that everything is based off my uh, uh, my orders of battle that I've given him. So, not you know, you... At all. Hey? not tempting at all. Chance, <laughs> uh, we've got no excuse now, really. Yeah, and and uh, if you know Bacchus miniatures, they are just fantastic. They uh, are. Peter does a great job on them, and uh, uh, you know he's a, he's a gem of a human being too. I want to get over to Joy of Six next year uh that that's the one that he hosts in uh suffield um, sheffield. sheffield yeah sheffield mm -hmm. and I, I really want to get over there next year and that's a different place i was stationed there oh yeah uh robert and i were supposed to go there together the year that covid uh buggered everything up so yeah. uh, i'll get over there again it's just a matter of uh um, reorganizing it yeah so that's, yeah I, that's on my bucket list too maybe i'll run into you there to a new gamer, I would recommend either 10 or 6 mil because there's a really, you know, there's a lot of good 10 mil stuff out there. Yeah. Uh, Rockin makes a fantastic range. And there's a couple others that uh, sort of amount, uh, you know, are at, uh, a good addition to it, like Magister Militum, things like that. Mm. But mm. 6 mil is my go to. They, it just, the scope that you see when you see uh, a couple divisions moving across the field in 15 or in 6 millimeter compared to 15 mil. It's just, it's just magic. It really is. Yeah. 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 I think as a Napoleonics guy, I would, I would totally agree with you there. And I, I did find one of the photos of your game at the war museum that you and Robert put on. And it was, uh, yeah. it was breathtaking, particularly you had all those really cool kind of lit co, uh, I think they were lit co explosion counters. They are. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And, and it, 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 you're going to play the game. They, they do a really good job of, uh, showing your bar barrage line and also where your, uh, where your artillery's firing. It's just, it, it looks the part really does. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you're, you're really um, challenging me to think that, uh, you know, I've, I've given the great war less attention as a gamer than I should have, but your, your, uh, your rules don't stop there. And, and I, you and I were talking before we turned the mics on about um, your other rule sets. Do you want to just sort of take us through your stable really quickly? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, so, just, just to finish off the Great War Spearhead, uh, I've got six scenario books out now that Robert and I have done, and we've right. got a bunch more. We've got, I think we've got a, a last count, 24 sitting in the background still waiting to be done. So we want to cover every aspect of World War I um, from 1914 to 1918, and we're going to do some of the outside eras too. Uh, we'll probably cover the Balkan Wars one and two. We might not do Russo-Japanese, but we'll have to see. Mm -hmm. So right now I've got uh, uh, Marching to War, which is West Front, uh, opening stages, first month of the war. The Battle of the Marne, 
which is just the Battle of Marne because it was so huge. It was a, it's an amazing, uh, amazing battle. If you've never read into it, it's incredible. Uh, then we've got uh, All Fine Men, which is the uh, Germans and Russians on the East Front. Summer Harvest, which is Austria and uh, Russia and Serbia. And again, this is, these are all first month of the war books. Then we go to um, uh, uh, Mesopotamia. Uh, for some reason, the, the, the name just left me. Um, uh, an unfortunate affair. Uh, no, not an unfortunate. Anyway, and then uh, the Gallipoli book. So those are the six scenario books. Um, for standalone rules, I've done uh, uh, a set of rules called uh, INEPT, which is International Extraterrestrial Paranormal Tactical Teams. And if you've ever uh, seen, the, <laughs> if you've ever seen the the, the game uh, XCOM, the old computer game, oh, yes. that was part of the genesis of me doing these rules. And they're just meant to be fun. They're fun, fast, furious. Uh, the idea is you have a small elite team of special agents, usually six to eight guys. You can go up to as many as 16 or 24, actually, if you if you have all your guys maxed out. You can do it in sort of a campaign style, and it's against aliens or paranormal. Like if you wanted to uh, uh, have some kind of nasty demon, uh, you could do that. And the, uh, the, uh, the inept guys can go in there and take it out. So it's a lot of fun. Uh, we've done uh, it, my my son and a couple of his friends say it's their favorite zombie game. So we did a massive zombie game here in a local store a few years ago where we had uh, 16 players, each either commanding inept units or police forces. And uh, the game run by me and two helpers uh, uh, was the equivalent of at one time. 450 zombies on the table but if you looked at it, how we went through them there was about 800 on the table it just wow. kept getting <laughs> so it was a lot of fun and then uh i've also got soe uh so that's a special operations executive churchill secret army and uh soe is is designed to be a uh, very small scale skirmish game where you command uh, a single uh, SOE agent. You can take more, like if you were playing two people, you could have a team of SOE agents against uh, the security forces. You can play anywhere in the world and the, you know, you've got uh, a variety of different um, uh, missions that they would uh, perform like uh, espionage. So you, you got to actually look and see what the, uh, what the Germans are doing or the Japanese are doing or the, you know, whoever the opponent is, is doing in a certain spot to see if it's a, a new type of weapon system or whatever. Um, or you could be uh, kidnapping a rescue. So, you know, you've got down British pilots that you're trying to get out of uh, uh, a town safely. Uh, or it could be assassinations or it could be actual raids where, you know, uh, you, you, you're sending SOE agents in to take out a, uh, a radar station or, a, or whatever the case may be. Oh, is that the Lysander? Yeah, you're you're thinking I should get uh, I should get this on the table now. So oh, big time, absolutely. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, it's in black, uh, uh, so appropriate. There you go. You're halfway there. Halfway there. Yeah. Um, and then my my final set of rules. Well, well I, I I'll mention the, the there is one other one, but I'll mention it sort of in passing because it's only meant to be sort of a silly fun thing. But uh, the other one I just did I, uh, via Kickstarter which is, uh, it's sort of exploded, um, for me, exploded, you know, being a, uh, an independent uh, uh, writer and, and producer of rules. Uh, and I, I, you know, I publish my stuff through Lulu. Um, it's tough to crack the market, but uh, I've got over uh, 150 sales of Morir pour l'Indochine, 
which is uh, uh, Indochina, France, uh, 1945 to 1954. And it, uh, it's book one. I'm doing a second book on that. And I also have about uh, roughly 100 scenarios that I'm going to put into a book, all based on the French and the Viet Minh. Um, so the, the first... Sorry, I was going to ask you about that. So your, your Kickstarter campaign for your Indochine project, was that successful? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It was success. I met my uh, goal within, uh, uh, what was it, uh, three and a half hours. Wow. Cool. Good job. Yeah. So I ended up with 76 backers, which was about, uh, you know, like I'm trying to be brutally honest here. 76 backers was about four times what I thought I was going to get. Hmm. So I was really, really happy with that. And since the, since the uh, Kickstarter ended, I've, uh, I've doubled sales. So like, it's just, um, it's a really interesting set of rules. Like if you like jungle warfare, um, this really, like my play test team that, that I work with here, um, you know, my sons and a couple other ki- people that, uh, we game with all the time. They, they, they say, man, oh man, it, it feels like it, it's gut wrenching. Cause you, you really feel for the French when they're trying to go on a patrol or trying to, uh, secure a base and you see all these Viet Minh and the Viet Minh are saying, man, that French firepower just makes you cringe every time you get close because all of a sudden your battalions are dis- or your, your companies are disappearing. Mm. So it's a, it's a, a really interesting set of rules. I spent about nine years developing it, uh, reading every book I could find and uh, delving right into the uh, lowest level. So the first book actually covers what I, uh, two, two skirmish levels. I uh, individual skirmish, which is one soldier is one uh, model, and then skirmish plus, which is one model is three soldiers in real life. So basically, a fire team. Uh, so you can play anything from uh, a single sniper getting uh, chased around by a, a squad of uh, troops, which is not a lot of fun. I wouldn't do that, but uh, you know you can go that low if you want to. And you can go right up to uh, uh, a battalion, like a Viet Minh battalion, assaulting a French company position. Mm-hmm. And then my last set of rules is just one that I did up because, uh, like, I'm a big horror fan. Like, I love horror movies and horror stories and things like that. So I did up this uh, set of rules that they're just meant to be just a joke, right? They're like they're fun. They're 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 a gas to play. We laugh a lot, but they're beer and pretzels, and it's called uh, Terror at Camp Nightfall. <laughs> and it basically, it's basically you're uh, you're either the murderer or you're one of six camp counselors who try and survive the night while the murderer goes around killing people. <laughs> right, right. That's it. So that's my stable rules today. Yeah. Uh, I'm working on SOE uh, spy versus spy, which is the Cold War. So it, it'll be uh, you know if you want to think of it as James Bond on the table, that's kind of what it would be. Oh. Uh, so that's one set of rules. I'm working on a, a skirmish set of World War One rules uh, that I call uh, Platoon Commander's War 1914 to 1918. I'm working on uh, uh, Warrior Portland uh Book Two, which will take you from the uh, your maneuver elements will be the company uh, and battalion. So it'll it, you'll be able to fight Dean Bien Phu in one one false swoop if you want to. Um, uh, I thought it would be any fun, but yeah, <laughs> still there. Fire. And, uh, and then of course, um, uh, a whole bunch of scenario books for great war spearhead too. Mm. So, and we're, we're also working on great war spearhead three and, 
the reason why I'm saying that is because uh, people will ask about it. We are working on it. There is no change to the rules themselves. What we are doing is we're, um, we're going to clarify some of the uh, questions we always get, especially on brigading uh, guns on the table and things like that. We're going to clarify all that. We're going to put in pieces that we've added in uh, over, the, over the years since the rules were uh, released, like the villages uh, are not in the rules, but they are uh, something that we added in in supplements. So we're going to put that in. We're going to put in the new naval gunfire, which is more accurate than what we used to have. And I'm going to clean up the orders of battle and I'm going to um, refine, like clean them up, meaning refine them to uh, a clearer state than what we had available to me when I wrote the original rules, because more data has come out on, on a few different uh, topics. And I'm going to expand the order of battle a little bit more, putting in uh, a little bit greater fidelity for certain armies because they deserve it. Um, I didn't do it the mm. first time. It was a, it was a supplement. To, uh, uh, and so I had a, a limited amount of pages I was allowed to use uh, when I was working with Artie on the original set. So uh, we just kept the same thing when we went to uh, Great War Spearhead 2, but it, it deserves a, a sort of a, 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 a remix, if you will, and a, and a bit more fidelity. Wow. And that's it. It's, it's going to be you know, basically upgraded. We're going to put a little bit more history in there so that people understand why certain things work certain ways. Because, you know, you know, some gamers will be as lazy as they can possibly be about a, a period. But if you put it in front of them, they'll read it. Hmm. So put a little bit of history in there as well. Hmm. Wow. So that's, it. that's where I'm going in the next few years. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that, that's, that's just an amazing um, body of work, uh, Sean. And I'm, I know some of it is you've done with uh, collaborators like, um, like Robert, but it's very, it's just very impressive. Um, so, uh, just wrapping this up, cause this has been a, a, a lovely, uh, wide ranging conversation and it's gone on for a while. Um, very quickly, um, when you want a game, um, you, you, you're lucky enough to have, uh, sons to game with you, but, uh, can you tell us very quickly what the gaming scene is like in Victoria or do you, you do you go, go across to the lower mainland or, um, we've got, um, a fairly significant number of gamers here compared to, you know, when you look at the size of Victoria, we've actually got a fairly strong gaming community. Um, a lot of the guys uh, locally here where I live, which is in Colwood, uh, which is in the Western communities, most of them, I would say probably 90% are Warhammer, Warhammer 40K players. But there's a good, there's a good number of historic uh, players as well, or, or, you know, sort of, uh, all genres, I should say. And uh, they've got a good club over at UVic. Uh, it's, it's a bit farther than I want to drive uh, once a week because uh, I'm kind of lazy that way. But uh, they've got a good bunch of guys over there. And I go over every once in a while, probably two or three times a year and game with them at, at uh, UVic. And then there's uh, a, another group that's downtown. We used to have a, a, a convention here once a year, but unfortunately they moved to the uh, Victoria Convention Center and ran into financial problem. And so they sort of went belly up, but we're kind of hoping that it resurrects itself in the next couple of years. Um, not my partnership to do that kind of stuff, but uh, there's there's enough enthusiasm from the, some of the newer gamers that uh, I think they'll probably resurrect it. Uh, Cause right now the only the only real convention we have is Trumpeters uh, when they run their, their show in, April, in March. 
And then if you wanted to, uh, you know, Trumpeters has a, a, a quite large base of, uh, of gamers. And I was mentioning my friend, Chris Leach. He has a, a good sized group over in White Rock as well. Yeah, I was going to ask you, is, uh, is Thomas Moore part of that group? Do you know Thomas? Yeah, I know Thomas quite well. Yeah, Thomas is yeah. part of the group, yeah. Yeah. Lovely guy. Yeah, I yeah. follow him on on Twitter, and we're. I'd be nice to have, um, be nice to have him on the show. Uh, talk about that that group. So that would be. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, you know, Chris, uh, Chris, if you can get Chris on, uh, you can find him on Facebook as well. But I can I can always send you a contact for you. That would uh, be. Got some. He's got some really interesting rules and. He and the guys in White Rock usually put on incredible games, uh, like uh, display games, down at uh, uh, Ancelot in uh, well, usually are outside of Seattle, right? Uh, and by the uh, the Northwest Gaming Group out of the, uh, the states there, and they often come away with the uh, uh, the top prize. And Chris is just an incredible fellow. He's been in. He you know, he was a big um, Peter Gilder fan, and actually went to the Holiday Wargaming Center when Peter was still alive. Oh goodness. Yeah. Uh, so really interesting guy. megalomaniac galore though holy smokes and he's he's written a couple set of rules as well um and he's got a couple more that he's he's working on so yeah he, he might be an interesting guy to talk to lovely thank you for that yeah. i i will uh, i'll talk to you offline about uh, maybe getting his contact info yeah. and finally um uh i'm, I'm going to do exactly it's what uh, yeah that's my swedish computer i'm going to do exactly what uh, sean uh, said to you uh as, as he closed uh when you are on God's own scale. Um, first of all, uh, we'd love to have you back on the podcast sometime, catch up with you. I'd be happy uh, to. And secondly, uh, if you have uh, one or two titles for our virtual library, which isn't as big as Sean's, but it's uh, it's got a, we're, we're slowly working on that. So do you have a couple right. of titles for us? I, I do, actually I've got four, if you don't mind. Sure. Uh, Two, uh, two books each from uh, two different authors. So um, uh, I, I'm not sure if I'm going to say this name right, but uh, uh, Mark Zulecki. Oh, yeah. Tragia Diep. Yeah. And Orcona. Yeah. Right. Please and then uh, from Terry Kopp, Fields of Fire. Yeah. And Cinderella Army. And anybody who hasn't read those four books that's Canadian, you better go out and buy them right now. <laughs> Well, I've read three. Yeah. Terry Kopp gives a whole different perspective to the Canadian Army uh, from World War II. And I think everybody needs to read those. Yeah. Um, I was almost in tears a couple of times at the tragedy of DF. It's just incredible. Mm -hmm. um, four really good books. Like, uh, you know, as a proud Canadian, proud Canadian wargamer, I think these are musts for every Canadian wargamer's library. Yeah. Yeah. The And uh, DF reminds me... Um, have you read, uh, I want to say, get his name right, James O'Keefe's book on DEP that came out last year? No. The one, where he the one where he argues that it was really all about Enigma. Interesting. Uh, there, was yeah. a, there was a TV program on that, too. I yeah. don't know if it was a book, but I, I remember seeing part of the TV program. Yeah, yeah. His, it, it's an interesting thesis, and as far as I can tell, it's really well-researched. But yeah, he's up now. <laughs> yeah. He's another Canadian to watch on DEP for sure. Yeah. Um, well, this has been great, and we're so grateful that um, we're so grateful for your time and your enthusiasm. And um, you, your your body of work is, like I said, super impressive. I'm going to put links on the pod notes to your uh, Lulu store and 
your um, your Great War Spearhead uh, page on Facebook and a couple other things. Perfect. So uh, once I get that done, I'll send it to you. And if you have any suggestions or additions, let me know, and I can edit that. So. Perfect. Okay. Thanks. Yeah. So thanks very much. We'll look forward to uh, having you on the podcast again at some point and hopefully uh, see you in person sometime. Cheers. Yeah, you bet. Thanks very much. All right. Okay. Hey. Uh, this, we're going to say goodnight. I'm just going to ask James to stay on for three minutes while we wrap up and then we're done. Okay. All right. James, I just wanted to, before we uh, go, I just wanted to hold up uh, to the screens uh, to a little package that appeared in the uh, mail. Oh, this hey. is one of, oh, sorry, he's all going all over the place. This is one of Bob Murch's Cossacks. Yes. And here's the other guy. You can see him in a nice yep. fur hat. Yep. So Is I've got... Green? Yeah, these are uh, uh, Bob's um, Cossack figures that he is selling to raise all the proceeds from the sales of these figures. They're in pairs. They go to the uh, UN High Commission for Refugees uh, Fund for Ukraine. So we are uh, giving away two sets. Here's one set. Dr. Tung's House of 3D Figures. Do, 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 do. <laughs> oh, very scary, <laughs> eh, kids? Scary concepts, yes. yes. Oh, so we are giving away uh, two sets of these figures. Here's how you can get a set. You have to find us on social media, and that's not very hard because we have a Facebook page, The Canadian Wargamer, on Facebook. Uh, you can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Podbean. Um, if you're listening to this, uh, uh, then or watching this on YouTube, that you've probably found us already. And then to be eligible, we're just asking you to leave a, uh, just leave some comment saying, "I watched the show, uh, listen to the podcast, like the figures." We don't ask for any money to do this podcast, um, and we're not on Patreon or anything. We do this do this because we believe in Canadian wargaming. And we want to tell stories. Uh, the story of Sean, yeah, and that's right. So that's what we're all about. It's uh, it's just a passion project, and um, yeah. So leave us a comment on social media, and uh, we'll pick a comment and at random, and send you a set of these figures. So, all right. Uh, again, thanks very much, Sean, for being on. And um, uh, oh, speaking of. Just one more thing before we go. This just occurred to me. I just thought this was so cool that we were talking with you tonight, Sean, about the Great War. And they, uh, D&D announced that they had found, identified um, the remains of Sergeant Richard Musgrave, a Canadian soldier of the First World War. Um, and uh, I don't know if you can see, you guys can see that, but there he is. He's He was... Uh, the story was picked up by our friend Bat, Brad LaCroix, who runs the On This Day in Canadian Military History site. But he's another Canadian soldier that uh, uh, has been identified through forensic evidence. And I just kind of got a bit weepy when I saw his picture and thought, yeah, he's going to get a proper burial. And um, some detachment of troops from the Canadian Forces is going to go over to some little cemetery in France and bury him properly. So I thought Very that good. was cool. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, this is to you, Sergeant Musgrave. Um, Sean, we have one thing that we do as we play people out. We finish the podcast with uh, some music from the military tradition. Um, the obvious choice for you would be Hearts of Oak, but with your family connection to the Calgary Highlanders, uh, their original march is uh, Highland Laddie. So I'm going to give you the choice, or maybe there's something else you'd like us to play. Um, you know, 
uh, I, I, I've stood up to Hearts of Oak, uh, God knows how many times, and it's a great tune. But I have to say my, my strongest connection is actually to the Rocky Mountain Rangers uh, March Past, if you have it. And that's uh, um, Bridge Over the Water. Okay, I'll find it. I'm not going to play it right now because I don't have the band ready, but uh, Bridge Over the Water. Yeah. yeah. We'll, have to, we'll have to give them some drinks first. Yeah. <laughs> All, right. All right. Okay, that's uh, that's a wrap, guys. Thanks so much. Good night, everybody, and God bless. Take care. Good night, eh? <laughs>